I have an apology to make. We don't have any kid sheets tonight, I'm sorry. Um, we do have some pictures. Hopefully that'll be enough to keep you engaged. But um, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 6 tonight. And Lord willing, if we're fast enough, we might get even to 7. But I wanted to show you some pictures first. Um, don't know if anyone uh, knows what these buildings are. Yes. Okay, uh, these are places of worship. That's, that's true. Um, this one, I think, is in Indonesia. I don't remember the name. Um, this one here is uh, in Myanmar, I think. Um, very elaborate place of worship. Uh, this one actually is a uh, temple in Beijing, China. So this, this actually is a real picture that we took while we were there. This is one of the sites that we, we got to see. Um, but what do all these things have in common? Yes, we're looking at different places of worship. And I remember a lesson that uh, one of my history teachers in college said to us at the time. She said, if you want to understand the values or what's important to a society, look at the biggest buildings in that country or that culture or that city or whatever. What are the biggest buildings? That usually signifies what the priorities are of that people. So these buildings that we've looked at are very large, ornate uh, buildings which indicate that those people that built those at the time had a priority on worship. Now, each of these that we've looked at, this a little more from the one in China, um, each of these that we've looked at are places actually uh, of false worship, but it does show that in those societies, uh, worship was important, and so they put a lot of time, energy, and money into building those buildings. And what we're going to look at today in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7 is how the children of Israel invested a lot of time, energy, and money in building the temple for the Lord. All right, so we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7 and talk about the building of the temple and how wonderful that temple is, which is ultimately a sign of how great and worthy our God is of worship. So, we're going to look at 1 Kings 6, and we're going to start actually with verse 1. Um, but before we do that, I want to just go to, go to prayer again to the Lord, and then we'll look at verse 1 and go on from there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us these words and scriptures to learn about you, to learn about what happened in the past so that we may model things that are good, but also learn from things that are not good, that we can avoid doing those things. But we pray that you'd help us today to understand some things about the temple and lessons that we can gather from that and apply to our lives. Though we live in a much different era, we still serve the same God. We, we praise you that you are eternal, 
And you are worthy of our worship and pray that you would encourage us to that end as we look at this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 6, 1 Kings says, Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, in the month, second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, jump with me, if you will, to the end of chapter 6 as well. We'll look at verses 37 and 38. It says there, In the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plants. So... He was seven years in building it, all right? So we see here in verse 1 of chapter 6, there is the beginning of a new era. It's significant in that this chapter focuses in on some dates of significance. So the first thing we should note is the timing here. It talks about the fourth year of Solomon's reign, all right? So it is generally understood that Solomon's reign began the year of 970 B.C., all right? So if he's in the fourth year, that's about 966 B.C., and it tells us that the temple was built uh, 480 years after they came out of Egypt. So if you do the math on that, 966 plus 480, that gets you to the Exodus was about 1446 B.C. So that's about the timing uh, of the building of the temple and how it's connected. Now, you might also wonder what's significant about mentioning that. Why, why does it even mention the 480 years since they're coming out of Egypt? What, what's the significance? Well, I think there's a parallel here to what we see in Exodus 12, 40 and 41. So I want you to look with me at Exodus 12 quickly, uh, 40 and 41. And see what it says there about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 40 and 41 says, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So, I believe there's a parallel with what we find in Exodus 12 to what we see here in 1 Kings 6. And the significance is in Exodus, that leaving of Egypt signaled the end of their bondage and slavery. So it was an era of change. And during that time, they were to, uh, they carried the Ark of, of the Covenant in the, and they had the tabernacle, all right? Um, and this happening here in 1 Kings 6 is indicating that the era of wandering, the wilderness wandering, and the use of the tabernacle was coming to an end with the establishment of the temple. So I believe that's the significant here. Significance is it's drawing attention to the temple replacing the tabernacle as a significant beginning of a new era in Israel. So that is what uh, we see as a focus. I, I believe it's also an indication that is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God made 
to David about the temple. Look with me at 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, and verses 10 and 11. In 2 Samuel 7, 10, and 11, the Lord is talking to David about the temple, and he says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded them to be judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. Uh, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. All right? So, um, well, he's actually talking about several things here, but he's talking about the Lord's people having rest, a transition from the wilderness wanderings to a time of rest, a time of peace. And we see that mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 5, where Solomon talks about having rest from all the enemies and therefore being a good time to build the temple. So the Lord has given them rest, and he's uh, using Solomon to build the temple that he promised uh, uh, would happen with David's son that David couldn't do himself, but that his son would do. So there is a focus in this, this verse upon an era of change in Israel. The tabernacle is being replaced with the temple, and that's a significant thing that the attention is drawn to that. So let's look at uh, some, some things we see in the building of the temple here. Now we're going to kind of jump through this quickly. There's a lot of construction stuff, and I admit to you I'm not uh, real knowledgeable about all the construction stuff. So we're going to cover the highlights and uh, talk about here, first of all, the frame of the temple. So the focus initially is upon the frame, the, the outside building construction of the temple in these uh, first few verses in 1 Kings. So let's look at verse 2. Starting with verse 2, it says, As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits and its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house he made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made the side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide. And the third was seven cubits wide, for on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. Verse 7, the house while it was being built was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house, and they would Go up by winding stairs to the middle story and the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. He also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. Now, you get down to verse 10, and it sounds like it's already done. But understand that he's talking about the frame or basically the, the outer structure of the temple, not everything inside of it and all the rooms and things. But uh, basically the outside of the temple uh, is the main stuff he's talking about there. And he talks in the first few verses, we, we read a lot about the dimensions of the temple. 
And then I'll just draw your attention to verse 7. I believe we talked about this last week, uh, but just mention again here, significant, it says, while the house was being built, the stone was prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe or any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. So I, I think this is a, a significant thing in that this was not necessarily the standard way things were built, but it's more of a indication of the sacredness of the task for which they were doing. So that's how they approached it. So there wouldn't be this noise at the building site. And we see also the, the last section of that uh, we talked about there is, is about the entrance. So it talks about the entrance and there uh, it is completed. All right. So we have the outer construction of the temple is completed here. And then let's look at verse 11 because there's a lot more work that's talked about in the rest of this chapter and then in chapter 7. But we find this interrupt. This interrupt to the construction process happens with a message from the Lord here. So let's look at verses 11, 12, and 13 which talk about a message from the Lord to Solomon. It says, starting with verse 11, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you which I spoke to your father, David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. All right, so we have first of all here the word of the Lord, it says, comes to Solomon in verse 11. We, we saw earlier on in the book of Kings that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. In this case, though it doesn't say specifically, it probably was a prophet that brought this message to Solomon. Um, but the word of the Lord comes to Solomon basically reminding Solomon of this theme we keep seeing in the book is the need for these kings to obey what God has said in order for the fulfillment of God's promises to David. It requires obedience. There is a condition on these promises. They, these are not unconditional promises that God will fulfill regardless of how they behave. There is a need for them to obey. We see in verse 12. It says, Concerning this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments, then I will carry out my word with you which I, have spoke, which I spoke to David, your father. All right, so there's a condition here. There is a need to obey. This, is re this was reiterated in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. And this was also found in 3.14, and we'll see it again in chapter 9, verses 4 through 8, where God says these things again. So it was important for the king to obey in order to experience the blessings that are promised. So it's important to understand the physical temple alone was not enough to guarantee God's blessings. And I think this is a great reminder for us. External things don't guarantee we're right with God 
or that God is going to bless, right? In a simple, simple example, we can go through the motions of showing up at church, but have a heart that's far from God, right? We can go through the motions of singing songs that, and we're repeating good words, but our hearts aren't in it and it's not sincere. That doesn't honor God. Externals alone are not going to bring God's blessings, right? We need to be faithful. We need to be obedient to the Lord. We need to have hearts that are dedicated to Him. And God is reminding them, though this is a great thing they're doing in building this temple, this temple is being built to honor Him, to worship Him, but the external building itself does not guarantee His blessings. They needed to obey. I think it's a great reminder for us as well. Externals alone do not guarantee God's favor, God's blessing. Again, also though, I believe this is an indicator again that the temple is a direct successor to the tabernacle. Look with me at Exodus 29. Exodus 29 verse 45. Exodus 29 and verse 45. One well, verse 44 we can include there as well for a little context. He says in verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, or tabernacle, and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. In verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Same language he has back with the tabernacle. They're coming out of Egypt. He has the same language here with the temple in this new era that's beginning with the construction of the temple. So another reminder, the temple is replacing the tabernacle as the place of worship and the symbolic presence of God with them. But, again, we're reminded in this passage that obedience is an important part of that. Now, I'd also mention, who is the one repeatedly getting the warning about the need to obey? The king. The leader. So how important it is for the leader to obey. And... I know in our society we're very individualistic and we, we have a very deeply ingrained sense of individualism that this kind of concept is hard for us. But God often deals with people by leadership. And how the leadership goes can many times bring trouble or blessings on people. And so... The warnings here are to Solomon. He is the representative of the people, and uh, it's important that he obey. And in, in a sense, he's the representative uh, of God's authority in the lives of the people as well, so he must not pervert that authority or do wrong things, misrepresent how the Lord would have things to be handled. So he has an important responsibility, and this is true for spiritual leaders. We see biblical examples of fathers as well. Uh, we see Achan, for example, 
Achim is the one who took the things from Jericho that weren't supposed to be taken, right? It was all supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, but Achim took and hid some things in his tent. And what happened? Him and his family were stoned. Now, it's possible that the wife and the kids, you could say, had a part in that, but it seems more likely the, the father is the representative of that family. And there's greater accountability on representatives. And that's the warning here, which is also why, to apply it to your current circumstances, your prayer, your searching for the next leader is very important. You need to get someone who's going to follow the Lord because that has a dramatic impact on the outcome of the church. You need a godly man. You need a man who's going to walk with the Lord and be consistent and be faithful so that there will be blessings, there will be growth, there will be positive change and improvement and problems being dealt with and resolved. You need someone who's going to walk with the Lord and be a good representative. It's very important. So it's a matter of urgent prayer that God will guide in that process. And you also have representatives leading that process, right? They need wisdom to make sure uh, they get to the right conclusions and lead uh, you in that decision. Um, but representation is important, and, and, and there's greater accountability there. So it's an important reminder of that lesson. So let's also look at the finishing of the inside of the temple. And this is a place we'll probably skim over a lot of things. There's a lot of details here. But uh, there's much said about the inside of the temple and things being finished there. It says, verse 14... It says, so Solomon built the house and finished it. Again, that's at that point, it's the external or the frame of the temple. It says, then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he overlaid the walls on the inside with wood. He overlaid the house of the boards with cypress. He built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with the boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built built them for it on the inside as an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. There was a cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of the gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. So basically they've covered the inside with, with wood. You're not seeing the stone that was used to build the frame. And then verse 19 says, Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with, with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. And he overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished, also the whole altar which is by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. All right, so we'll just stop there. Um, so we see the, the wood uh, being built in the inside, and then that being covered with gold. Uh, things are covered with gold, and, and that is all throughout the temple. It also tells us in uh, verses 23 to 28 about the... Uh, inner sanctuary or the holy of holies that was built the place where the ark would go 
They also built inside of there two cherubim uh, statues, or cherubim, or cherubim are angels, um, and those uh, statues there had wings that were basically spread out, and they said each wing was five, five cubits, right? Um, five cubits was, it says in 24, uh, the length of one wing. So basically, uh, the wingspan of the angels was 10 cubits, and they touched each other so that it went the full width of the 20 cubits in there. All right? So th there's cherubim uh, put inside the Holy of Holies there in 23 to 28. It tells us about those. This is similar to what we see with the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 25. Um, and there's, there's place left there for the ark. But we also see in verses 31 uh, down to 36, we see the rest of the inside finished with the entrances. It talks about the different kinds of doors and things like that, and the, the courtyard as well. And then we get the conclusion about the, uh, the temple being finished in 37, 38, which we already looked at. So I would just draw attention to the significance of the building construction and the use of gold in the temple gold was and remains a very precious valuable metal and the significance of the excessive use of gold is to signify the greatness of god that he is worthy to be worshiped in a most beautiful decorated temple very lavishly decorated um, and, and that he is worthy of, of such worship now uh, we might look at that and again think about the externals versus the internals and say well this is just an external building why bother be so fancy or so expensive with it but again I think the point of it is uh, this was an era when lots of kings in different places built fancy temples to their gods, and this is a sign of how valuable and worthy the God of Israel is for them to worship. So it is a sign of how, uh, how he is worth that worship. He is worthy of the honor and glory that such a beautiful temple would signify. And it also uh, speaks of the wisdom of God. It was God that gave wisdom to Solomon to lead the building project for such a glorious temple. And it was a sign of his worthiness. Now, again, I think there's significance here of the value of our God, his worthiness of our worship, right? Um, there were times in the Old Testament where they took up offerings. Uh, there was a time when uh, uh, Moses asked for gifts to be given for the tabernacle when they were constructing uh, much of that. And it talks about how the children of Israel were so grateful to God for all that he had done and how he had provided for them, protected them, brought them out. And they, in thankfulness, gave richly to the Lord. And I think there's... Uh, a similar kind of thought here that we should take away about our willingness to generously give to the Lord. But I also think, though the, the, the church and the, the church building, if you will, that we reside in is not a replacement for the Old Testament temple. 
It is, however, a place where we meet and worship God and an indicator of how important that, to, important that is to us can be how we take care of the facilities where we worship him. Yes, God is spirit, and he doesn't dwell in the building or make his glory known in the building in the same way he appeared in the tabernacle and temple. This is where we worship the Lord, and a part of how we glorify him is making the place where we do that respectable and honorable and not a detraction from worship. We should be thoughtful about the building and how we take care of it. It isn't the same as the Old Testament temple, but I believe there is a significance in how much we value our Lord and the worship of him in thinking about those things. So let's look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 is full of a lot of details that are uh, tedious to get through, and we're not going to have time to go through them all, but I just want to draw attention to a few things as we look at that. So let's look, first of all, at the, uh, the family facilities, if you will. It wasn't only Solomon's family, but uh, that's, that's definitely a part of it. It tells us in uh, chapter 7, it's, it starts with Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. And then it talks about the different components involved here. Um, I would just uh, draw your attention to verse 6. It, it says, in the, he made a hall of pillars. So this perhaps was the entry hall for judgment. And then there was, in verse 7, uh, we see he made the hall of the throne, or the hall of judgment, where he was to judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. So this is um, part of the uh, palace complex, if you will. Um, so he has a hall of judgment. And it also talks in verse 8. It says, His house where he was to live, the, uh, the other court inward from the wall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. So we see uh, the, the palace and uh, a house for his wife that he, he married as well. So it's kind of difficult to know this, but it talks about it taking 13 years to build these things. Now, it could be that the construction was greater, took longer, um, or that maybe there was less priority on building these buildings, or um, this could be some indicator that Solomon, it, it, maybe it's a foreshadowing, uh, again, of Solomon's misfocus, that he, uh, for his many wives, um, spent a lot of time uh, making his living quarters nice and fancy, um, perhaps inappropriately so. But the text does not draw that out for us, so it's hard to make any definite conclusions. Uh, clearly, the temple was built first, and that was the appropriate focus. Um, these other buildings are government, uh, if you will, administrative buildings and, and the place where Solomon uh, and his family lived. But um, the clear focus and priority for the nation of Israel is the temple, as, as it ought to have been. Now, in verses 13 to 52, I'm just going to draw your attention to a few things there as we go through that. Um, 
we're talking here about the furnishings that are going into, uh, that are part of what's used in the temple service. So we have verse 13 and 14, something that might be a little confusing. It says in verse 13, Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. Now, that might be confusing to you if you're paying careful attention. Because it talked in chapter 5 about the king of Tyre. And his name was Hiram. But it's not the same person. So this is a different person. And it talks about this person that he is going to work in bronze. And it talks about how he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. Before I give you the answer, does that remind you of anyone else in the Old Testament that's talked about like that? Yeah, exactly. Bezalel, who helped build the things for the tabernacle. So again, this is a significant indicator that the temple is replacing the tabernacle. God gave this man wisdom to build the furnishings needed for the temple service. All right? So, yes, we see those same kinds of things here that we see um, in uh, Exodus about the tabernacle. So it talks about these pillars. There's two large pillars um, at the entrance of the temple that talks about them. They are, uh, I believe it says, 18 cubits high, or 27 feet high. Significant uh, pillars, works of bronze that were done there. He built those. It also talks about um, the sea. In verse 23, it talks about the sea of cast metal. It was 10 cubits. And basically, this was to hold water. So it provided water for the priests in, in doing the service of the temple um, for cleansing and, and things needed in uh, the work that was done there in the temple. It also talks in 27 to 37 about stands. Stands were a way to mobilize the water because you had this sea of cast metal that was very large. Essentially, it kept about 11,500 gallons of water. So an immense amount of water was kept in the, in the sea. Um, but these other stands, or these basins it talks about, um, were for mobilizing the water to get it around to the places where it would be needed. All right, it also talks there about uh, basins. And, uh, and there's kind of a summary given in uh, verse 40 to 47 here about the furnishing. So it talks about him... Fin finishing all these other parts, shovels and bowls. And he did all the work, uh, it says in verse 40, which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. And basically walks through that stuff and also talks about the networks of pomegranates and things as well. Um, and uh, all these things that he did here, and it says in verse 47, Solomon left all the utensils unweighed, because they were too many. The weight of bronze could not be ascertained. So an immense amount of work that was done here for the temple. And again, I think this signifies 
the importance of God and their priority of worshiping and honoring Him. I think it's also significant in, in talking through all these details and about how everything was done. It also speaks about another quality of the Lord, which is that He is organized. Do you remember reading in the book of Exodus, or maybe I think it was the book of Numbers, actually, it talks about the children of Israel and how they're going out and they're moving forward. And it talks about the three tribes on the north side, the three tribes on the south side, three tribes on the west and the east. And, and, and I've thought before, what's, what's the point of those details? And, and what I've come to conclude about that, as well as things like this, is it shows us that our God is organized. He is an orderly God. And it talks in the New Testament as well about the concept in the church of things being done decently and in order. Why? Because the opposite is chaos. God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. And all this beautiful work is done signifying the greatness of our God, His worthiness of our worship, and I think as we, we look at these chapters, it can be hard to dig through the details. Hopefully, we've pulled out some things that would be helpful to remind us. We should not worship our God in a sloppy, careless manner. He is worthy of things being done decently and order. He is the only true God. He is worthy of our greatest, of our best. And the externals alone are not good enough. We're told that we need to seek Him with our whole heart. A genuine worship is what our God wants and deserves. And He deserves the best. And that's what we should give Him. And hopefully these chapters in 1 Kings are a reminder to us to that end. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You we thank you that you are gracious to provide a way for us through your Son that we can have forgiveness of our sins so that we can genuinely, truly worship you and give you praise as you deserve. Father, we are often lazy. We're often careless. We are often disorderly or sloppy. Help us to be challenged, to be disciplined, to be purposeful, to be thoughtful, to be fully mentally engaged in worshiping you when we're together, um, but also in our private worship, that we would not just simply go through the motions, but sincerely, wholeheartedly seek you and walk with you. And Father, you are worthy of more than we can do and provide, but Father, you, you don't ask for rich gifts. You want a broken and contrite heart as we even heard about in Sunday school. Help us to remember that we need to give you our whole heart, be fully committed to you, and worship you sincerely, uh, richly, as you, as you deserve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.